Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, we'll be studying Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we will face this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, today is Thursday in Passion Week. Uh, Today is actually Sunday. This morning is Sunday. But uh, the passage that we are studying is Thursday. Um, Well, it's actually Thursday and Friday. Uh, See, with uh, the way that the, the Jews worked their days back in Jesus' time, uh, the next morning, or the, the next day actually starts at sundown, around 6 p.m. So when uh, we talk about it being Thursday of Passion Week, we're actually talking about kind of the end of Thursday and like almost like Friday morning, but it's not morning because it's actually evening on the Thursday night. Uh, it's a little bit confusing, but this is kind of where we are. Um, we have just uh, spent a week with Jesus. Um, he, he enters into Jerusalem on Sunday morning. Uh, which is not the Sabbath. Remember, Saturday is the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Sunday morning, riding on a colt, uh, a foal of a donkey, uh, and people are praising his, are singing his praises and are declaring him to be the king. Uh, and he comes into Jerusalem, and uh, he uh, comes in, he looks around, and he goes out of Jerusalem almost immediately afterward. Uh, and the next day he comes in and he overturns the the money the tables of the money changers in the temple and, and creates a big stink, makes a huge mess and uh, and and from there, uh, well actually then he turns and he leaves and goes out of the city and the next day he comes back into the city so we're talking about Tuesday morning and he spends all of Tuesday arguing uh, Tuesday and Wednesday from what we can tell arguing and debating with uh, high priests and scribes or the lawyers of the day, uh, with the Pharisees, the, the, the men of Israel who sought to be, uh, sought to be holy, um, the Sadducees, the more liberal kind of people, the Herodians, kind of the, the pro-Roman uh, people of the day. Like he, he had arguments with the whole spectrum of people. Um, spent, spent a couple of days doing that, uh, taught a lot about a lot of different things. He taught about the nature of the law. He taught about giving. He talked about uh, the the end times. Uh, he talked about a lot of things. But now it is uh, the two-day, or no, sorry, it is uh, the first day of unleavened bread. So it is Thursday, okay? The first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. So they were supposed to sacrifice the Passover lamb at twilight, well, that's how it was originally. They were supposed to sacrifice uh, the Passover lamb at around uh, on right early on Friday. So remember, early on Friday is actually late on Thursday. So I, I'm still trying to work that out in my head and how the time works. And uh, I don't expect you to get it 100%. But just know that when Jesus is having Passover with his disciples, it is Friday morning-ish, sort of. <laughs> uh, 
This is where we come to this morning. Uh, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So that's where we ended off last week. And now we are heading into the, the final uh, hours of Jesus's life. The final, his final interaction with his disciples is this week and next week. Um, and then after that, Jesus is going to be brought before the council, uh, brought before uh, what is known as the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling class uh, in Israel. Uh, he is going to be brought before Herod. He's going to be brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and he's going to be beaten and crucified. And this is all going to happen today. This is all going to happen on Friday of the Passover. He is going to be He's going to die uh, late on Friday um, as the sun is setting. So this is basically, we are into Jesus's final 24 hours uh, of life. Uh, it makes quite a, a dramatic uh, exit, if you will. It's, it all happens very fast. The trial is at night. Uh, he is, um, yeah. So starting this morning, we will be studying the Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper. From Mark 14, starting in verse 12, let's read together. Please stand in reverence to the word of God. And on the first day of unleavened bread, they sacrificed, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, stay, say to the master of that house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man whom the son, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. He said, Take, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said to them, or he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Amen. Please be seated. So this is a very important time of year for the, the people, for the Jewish people. This is the time of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, this was instituted uh, by God to Moses in Exodus chapter 13. I'm going to read that for you, Exodus chapter 13, not the whole thing, I'll be reading just a select verses from, from Exodus 13, uh, but this is important for understanding uh, what, what Jesus and his disciples are doing and, and why they're gathering the way that they are. Uh, it's kind of hard for us sometimes uh, in our North American context, we're 2,000 years removed from, from this thing and, and we know quite a lot, generally speaking, about the Lord's Supper, but even then... We don't know that much. Uh, we, we have general ideas. And so going back to the beginning is the, the most efficient way 
to help us understand exactly what's going on when we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, So in Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 3, it says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to give to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be to you a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statute at its appointed time from year to year. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a memorial for what the Lord did for the people of Israel in bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, they, Jesus, uh, this is an important time for them. And so Jesus sends uh, his two disciples uh, that he trusts the most. Um, other gospels tell us that this is Peter and John. He sends these two disciples to go and to prepare this Passover. This is a time for them to come together to remember why they have an identity, a Jewish identity. If, if this event had not happened, there are no Israelites. There are no Jews. They, they would have been uh, continuously enslaved in Egypt until their entire population was either stamped out or they became Egyptians. Uh, that's basically the only two scenarios that they would have had. Um, and even if they had not been brought out of Egypt, let's say they had stayed there and grew to such a number that they could rebel and overpower the Egyptians, they would never have moved into the promised land. They would have stayed in Egypt, right? They, they lived there. They would have conquered the Egyptians and that's where they would have stayed. And so this, in order for them to not be Egyptians, to not live in Egypt, to not have an Egyptian identity, this is a very important event in their history. This is how they became a nation. This is extremely important. And so they celebrate this every year. This is one of the things that they did, that they did without fail. Uh, in the Old Testament, they forgot about it a lot. But by the time Jesus was born, uh, they had kind of found their religious identity and they were doing it every single year. Uh, and and, and they, they would usually gather in Jerusalem until the year 70. And the reason for that is because in the year 70, uh, Israel was conquered and destroyed by the Romans. The walls were ter- torn down, the temple was burned, and the people of Israel were scattered. And so uh, it, the Passover is still something that is observed by Jews to this day, but it is not observed in the exactly the same way that they did it here. Uh, so Jesus sends two of his disciples to go off to prepare a Passover. Um, and, and this is obviously a prearranged signal, uh, what, what Jesus says to them here. Uh, he's obviously spoken to somebody about this uh, and, and is making sure that his disciples know exactly where to go. And the reason we know that is because when they go into the city, they find a man carrying a pitcher on his head. That's woman's work. Men don't carry pitchers on their head. Not in this day and age. Uh, And I mean, even if you go to Africa and you see people carrying pitchers on their heads, you won't see any of the men carrying pitchers on their heads. 
This is something that is very specifically a woman's job. And so Jesus has has spoken to the master of this house and he has made sure that his disciples will have uh, no ambiguity about where they're supposed to go. But why why all of the, the weird jiggery pokery trying to figure out, you know, go and find a man with a with a pitcher on his head? Why not just say, yeah, go to uh, 834 Hebrew Street? I don't know. You know, why, why didn't he just tell them exactly where to go? Well, likely the reason is that Jesus knew that uh, Judas was going to betray him. And so if he had just announced to his disciples the, the exact location of where they were going to go, that would be the perfect opportunity for Judas to gather some people and to go and to hand Jesus over to them before they could eat the Passover. Right? When everybody is away and eating the Passover, they're all in their own homes. They're all sitting around having a meal. It's the perfect time for soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. Nobody will be paying attention. But this is an important meal. This is something that Jesus really must do with his disciples before he dies. This is extremely important. So he has this kind of um, prearranged signal which will tell his disciples exactly what to do. So they would go, they went into the city, they found the man uh, with the pitcher on his head, uh, and they followed him to, his, to the house, and they spoke to the master of the house, and then they prepared the Passover. Uh, the two disciples, in order to prepare the Passover, they would have to go and get a lamb, and they would have to take it to the temple. Uh, they would take it, they would get in line, and they would come up to the priest, and the, they, they would lay their hands on its head and then cut the throat of the lamb. And the priest would hold a silver bowl or a gold bowl underneath the throat of the lamb or the kid of a goat. It could be either one, a lamb or a goat. And they would catch the blood and they would take it to the altar and they would dash it against the altar. And then they would take the, um, they would remove the fat and the entrails for the burnt offering and then they would give the lamb back to the disciples and they would go to where they were going to eat it and they would roast the lamb with its head and its tail still attached over an open fire. And that was how they were to prepare the Passover. So quite an involved process, um, quite a uh, bloody and gruesome process. Uh, and, and according to the Jewish historian Josephus, on, in one day, approximately a quarter million lambs would have been slaughtered in the temple in Jerusalem. That's a lot of blood. <laughs> I was just thinking about that in my head. Can you imagine the what was involved with the Passover in that day? Such a, a huge event in the people's lives. Um, they would also have to prepare unleavened bread. Uh, and they used unleavened bread, uh, not because they were uh, gluten-free or anything like that. Um, Although wheat is, is gluten, isn't it? So that's wrong anyway. Um, unleavened bread. They wouldn't eat unleavened bread for any reason uh, other than that it would cook a lot faster. And so with the, with the first Passover, remember they were still slaves in Egypt. And so in order for them to <clears throat> accomplish their goals, they needed to work quickly. And so they, they roasted the lamb with its head and its tail attached because it would take too long to remove the head and the tail. Uh, they ate the Feast of Unleavened Bread because when you put leaven in your bread, it takes a lot longer to cook. It takes a lot longer to prepare. Uh, there's also uh, a theological reason why they would not put leaven in their breads. It's because oftentimes leaven is uh, uh, symbolic for sin. Where, you know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump and, and that sin is all-consuming. And so they're, 
They're not only are they doing it for practical reasons, but they're also doing it for a more spiritual reason, saying we are we are seeking to abolish sin from our lives. And so we are eating unleavened bread. We are not allowing the sin to permeate our lives. We're going to be pure and we're going to be holy as the Lord has called us to be. And so they they take their uh, they, they would have taken all that and put it up in the in the upper room, gotten everything ready with the location being kept a secret. And then uh, Jesus came with the rest of uh, the other 10 disciples and probably some others. It's hard to know exactly. Um, Jesus traveled with quite the entourage. Uh, and so it's possible that other people were there. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, and I'm not going to uh, say yes or no. Um, what's important is that he was there with the 12. He was there with his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples. Um. And so in the celebration of the Passover, Jesus is displaying the fulfillment of the old covenant that God made with the Jews, where he saved them from a physical trial. And so that's what he does here. They, they gather together uh, when evening came. So Friday morning, uh, this is verse 17. It was evening time. And uh, they, they were reclining at the table. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. So again, we know that Jesus knew what was going to happen. We knew that he knew exactly who it was who was going to betray him. Uh, and so uh, they began to sorrowfully say to one another, uh, is it I? Is it I? And he says, it's one of you. <laughs> I love Jesus. He doesn't just say who it is. He, he allows the meal to go on in peace, relative peace. He, he has to say this thing, but he allows the meal to go on. He can't, likely if he'd have called out Judas at that point, the other disciples would have violently attacked him. Um, they loved Jesus. Uh, and, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, Peter actually cuts off a man's ear trying to defend Jesus. So if, if Jesus, Jesus had identified Judas in this room, it's likely that they would have tried to stop him. And, and this is something that needed to happen. You can't stop the betrayal of Jesus. Jesus needs to be betrayed. He needs to be handed over to be crucified so that he can pay for the sins of his people. Um, yeah. So truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Um, the son of man goes as, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Such a, a sad thought about Judas, that it would be better for him if he hadn't been born. May that never be said about any of us. May we never turn and betray our Lord like Judas did. This is not uh, something light. This is not something trivial. This is a statement of woe by Jesus. And we don't use that language a lot. Woe is me or woe, woe is this person. But this is, it's very strong language. It's very serious language. Uh, we should not uh, make light of this when we consider uh, the implications of, of Jesus saying, woe is that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed would have been better for him if he had not been born. <clears throat> Jesus now, uh, in, in the midst of eating the supper, he is going to make reference to the old covenant that God made, the old agreement that God made with his people to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And he's going to institute a new covenant, which would symbolize the spiritual salvation of the people. Uh, in speaking of covenant, uh, what I mean by that is uh, the pledges that God makes to his people. 
So when I'm talking about the old covenant, uh, what I mean is uh, the, the agreement that God made with Israel, also known as the covenant of works, whereby God would say, uh, do this and you will live. You do this, you will live. You do this, I will bless you. You fail to do this and I will curse you. Uh, this is found in, in Deuteronomy uh, and, and, in the, and in the first other books of the Bible. Um, it was a law-based agreement where God pulled his people out of Egypt and commanded them to obey him. When they obeyed, they received blessings. When they disobeyed, they received curses. In the new covenant that Jesus is instituting today, this new covenant, the Lord's, represented by the Lord's Supper, there is no do this and you will live. That is abolished. It is no more. There is no do this and you will live. There is no you do your best and I will maybe bless you. There is none of that. The new covenant is God saying, I have done this. Now you will live. You see the big difference there? In the old covenant, X, Y, and Z. You obey the law, you'll be okay. You disobey the law, you will die. In the new covenant, there is no law. There is no do. We are not saved by works. Well, actually, we're saved by Jesus' works. So we are saved by works, just different works. He says, I have done this, and now you will live. Not based on your work, but based on my work entirely. In the first Passover, uh, every household had to have a spotless lamb, sacrificed in just the right way to keep them from death. They were required to take the lamb's blood and to paint it on the doorposts of their homes so that the angel of death would pass over their homes. In this way, the lamb was a substitute, taking the death that they deserved. In this way, or in this new Passover, Jesus becomes the spotless lamb. Jesus becomes the substitute. He was completely without sin, making him spotless. He was innocent like a lamb, and he was slaughtered in the place of sinners. And in this new Passover, the blood of Jesus is painted on the doorposts of our hearts, covering our sin, and the wrath of God passes over us and lands on the Lord Jesus. Unleavened bread symbolizes the purity of Jesus. So when Jesus takes the bread and breaks it and says to them, take, this is my body, he is giving his disciples the symbol of the purity that they receive in Christ. When Jesus takes the cup and gives it to them and they all drink, he says to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Notice that language, my blood of the covenant. There's a new covenant. There's a new agreement that God has between his people. When Jesus says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many, he was telling his disciples how their salvation was going to be accomplished. Jesus is making a new covenant based on his work alone. This new agreement between God and his people is this. God does all the work and God's people receive all the blessing. That's a good deal, isn't it? It's a good deal. I like that deal. I don't like that deal of maybe if I work hard enough, God will like me more. I like the deal of God is going to give us free grace, free salvation, absolutely unearned, unmerited free gift. It's glorious, glorious, wonderful agreement. 
He is going to take his perfect body and offer it up as a spotless sacrifice. When his blood pours out, it will accomplish the work of saving his people from the wrath of God. He says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. The blood of his covenant will be poured out for many. Jesus' blood never fails to accomplish the salvation of anyone. It cannot fail. Those who receive it play no part in its effect. The new covenant that God has made through the blood of Jesus is an unconditional agreement based on nothing in the one receiving its benefit. It is a covenant of grace. So we had a covenant of works, do this and you will live. Now we have a covenant of grace. God's undeserved favor. The concept of do this and you will live has been erased. And those who have been covered by the blood cannot undo the covering. Since they played no part in receiving the covering in the first place. Salvation is by God's grace alone. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says this clearly. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. It is not your own doing. The salvation that we receive through the blood of Jesus is not our own doing. It is his doing. God does not fail. If you're sitting here and you're a Christian, you didn't do that. You didn't make you a Christian. God made you a Christian. God saved you by the blood of the covenant. The salvation that we receive through the blood of Jesus is his doing. God does not fail. He did that on the cross 2,000 years ago by pouring the blood of the covenant out on the cross. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So what did Jesus, so, so that's what Jesus did on the cross. He poured out the blood of his covenant. He allowed his body, his, his pure, spotless body to be given for us. But what did he do on the cross? Or, or sorry, what did he do during this Passover meal? What is, what is he really saying in this Passover meal? He's instituting something for his disciples to do. His people are to do this as long as he is gone. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that we do this, when we do this, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Now, here is where the debate begins. What actually happens when we partake in the Lord's Supper? The question that arises from Jesus' words, this is my body, is this. What does he mean when he says that? And there are a lot of different views. In the history of the church, one view that arose to prominence was the Catholic view. See, they believed and continue to believe in what is known as transubstantiation. And this is the idea that when Jesus said, this is my body, he meant that literally. So when the priest uh, prays over the bread and wine and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is declaring that Jesus Christ is literally bodily present in the bread and the wine. He is declaring that Jesus is there. So when someone comes forward to partake of the elements, the priest is literally giving Christ to that person. That's what's happening. They believe that partaking in the Lord's Supper is an important work in our salvation. 
That it's something that you need to continually do to continually receive Christ. This is a view that was basically unopposed for quite a long time until the 1500s when other uh, prominent church figures arose. Uh, They are known as the Reformers. In the early 1500s was one man named Martin Luther. And actually October 31st, is the 500 was the 501st anniversary of him nailing his 95 theses to the church castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, Martin Luther was uh, he he was a a monk in the Catholic Church, and he wanted to reform the church. He saw that there were issues in the church. He wanted to reform them. Um, what kind of set him off at the beginning when with the 95 theses was he believed that the sale of indulgences. Uh, which was the, the Catholic practice of giving you time off in purgatory, that though, that, that was something that was wrong. That, uh, and, and so he wrote his 95 theses against this idea of the sale of indulgences. But as he delved deeper and began to read the Bible for himself, he noticed that there were actually a lot more problems with the Catholic Church than just the sale of indulgences. Um, and, and one of the things uh, that happened here um, was, was the issue of the Lord's Supper. He disagreed with the Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. And the reason that he disagreed is because the Catholics believed that it was something that you needed to do for salvation. That you were doing a work of salvation. And they believed that the priest is able to give you the righteousness of Christ. And this is something that is, that is very wrong. That is very anti-biblical. Something that Martin Luther stood against. Uh, He declared what the Bible said, which is that salvation is by the grace of God alone, not by taking communion. And so, uh, though he did believe that Jesus was uh, present in the elements, he did not believe that Jesus, that you could receive more of God's saving grace by partaking in communion. Uh, he did believe that Jesus was, was really present. And so this is the idea known as consubstantiation. So there's transubstantiation and there's consubstantiation. Don't worry, there's not going to be a test. Um, it is known as the idea more commonly as real presence. Uh, the omnipresence of Christ, according to Luther, is in the elements physically. Um, I, I take issue with this view uh, because... Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, bound himself to a human body. And so he is not omnipresent in that sense because he is bound to one place at one time. He is in a human body and he has been raised from the dead and he has been given a glorified body. He has obtained a glorified body and he is now seated at the right hand of God. But that doesn't mean that he's omnipresent. He may be able to see everything, but he, his body is not present. I, I believe that our uh, Lutheran brothers and sisters are, are wonderful Christian people. I don't think that they're wrong there. Well, I think that they're wrong, but I don't think that they're unsaved because they believe what they do. Um, but uh, I, I believe that there are holes in that view. Uh, one contemporary of Martin Luther was the Swiss man Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, and he, he and Luther actually debated this topic quite roughly uh they were very it was something that they that they separated over um because Ulrich Zwingli believed that Christ is not present in the elements but that the Lord's Supper is only a memorial that when Jesus said do this in remembrance of me 
that that meant that this was just a memorial. That's all it was. We were just remembering. And Luther took great issue with that. Um, they actually were having a council together and Luther uh, whipped the tablecloth off his table and pulled out a dagger and carved in the words, this is my body to prove Ulrich Zwingli wrong. Um, so in, in the end, they, they decided to part ways. Uh, Ulrich Zwingli's view um, that, that the supper is, is a memorial is held by Baptists and Pentecostals, Alliance, and most non-denominational groups like ours. That's, that's kind of the standard view uh, that the kind of the, the evangelical world uh, holds on to. Um, Luther, like I said before, Luther took issue with this. Um, eventually they split over it. It wasn't entirely a hate-filled split. They didn't like each other much, but it wasn't that they thought that the other was, you know, going to hell or anything. They just couldn't, they couldn't reconcile their differences. Um, but John Calvin, uh, another man who helped reform the church in the 16th century, um, tried to find a middle ground. Uh, and this, the, the reformed Presbyterian Anglican view uh, of the Lord's Supper is, is kind of what he uh, kind of started with him. Um, he believed that the Holy Spirit is present in the bread and the wine, uh, that there's a physical benefit to partaking in the elements. He believed that the Holy Spirit, uh, through the bread and wine, seals the promise that is made in God's word, and that the Holy Spirit is the bridge between your physical body and Christ's physical body. So there is a physical benefit to you taking it through the spiritual benefits that the Holy Spirit is giving you. Um, the important point, uh, the important point here is is that it's only effectual for those who believe. It's only effectual for those who believe. It only carries blessing for those who believe. In in the Roman Catholic view, kind of anybody can take it and receive some blessing. That's not that's not what uh, the the believers, the the reformers, uh, said. This was something that was only for believers. It's a family meal, if you will. It's only for people who are part of uh, the brotherhood of Christ. Um, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you have not fully trusted in his grace to save you, this meal has no benefit for you. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verses 27 and 28 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine themselves then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. So you need to pay attention to me now. If you've been falling asleep through all of this uh, different views and things like that, this is the point that you need to pay attention. Okay? It's important that you understand that this is a family meal. It's important that we all understand this. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you need to remember that this is a family meal. This is only for Christians. And in this church... Uh, we, we are not like other churches. Some churches guard the table. Some churches will say that only members can partake. Um, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. That's not what I'm here to debate. But the point is that here in our church, we serve you communion in faith that you are being honest. We serve you communion trusting that you have worked out where you're at with God and are going to make a decision accordingly as to whether or not you should be partaking in this meal. Uh, we are not going to refuse to allow people to partake, no matter what we think of them. That is our policy at the moment. 
That may change one day. I don't know. But at the moment, we are going to serve communion to whoever wants it. But you need to realize that your judgment is on your head. If you are partaking in this and you are not a believer, if you trust in something, anything, even a little bit other than the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in your own goodness or your own works or something that you said or did to save you, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. This is important. If, uh, if you're a parent, don't let your children partake of this meal unless they have made a personal confession of faith. Uncoerced personal profession of faith. So you did not sit them down and make them repeat after you to say a prayer. To try and get them into the kingdom of God. You need to wait and allow them to come to this on their own because it's not between you and them and God. This is something that is between them and God. And so as much as you may desire, and understandably so, desire that they be saved, it's not up to you. It's not up to me. We have to let them come to that on their own. In my... Well, it's best if children under the age of 12 or 13 don't partake in this unless they fully understand what they're doing in the act of partaking. Uh, Unless they have made a personal profession of faith that is, like I say, uncoerced, not pushed on them. Uh, If you are not a believer or if you are not sure if you're a believer, just don't partake. Play it safe. Play it safe. Uh, If you're not sure, don't partake. It's better to miss one than to eat and drink judgment on yourself. Or it's better for you to maybe find it slightly embarrassing that you maybe don't know than to eat and drink judgment on yourself. It's far better to pass the the elements by than to, uh, in your desire to make everybody think a certain thing about you, to partake, but then to eat and drink judgment on yourself. This is, a, this is something that we are to do. This is, at the very least, it is a memorial for Christians. Uh, but it, it, it's likely that there's more to it than that. And uh, you can come to your own conclusions about that. But this is important. We don't baptize unbelievers. We don't offer the Lord's Supper to unbelievers. These holy dramas, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, are are signs of the miracle of salvation. In our baptism, we are symbolizing that we have come to new life. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming that the Lord has won our freedom. And these are things that only free people should do. It is a sign of the miracle of salvation. I like the way that uh, Dr. Gene Veith said it. He said, quote, Many Christians look for signs and miracles, but there is no more miraculous sign than what happens during Holy Communion. Many Christians look for a religious experience, but there is no experience as vivid as tasting. Evangelicals talk about receiving Christ as something that happened way back at their conversion, but in the Lord's Supper, as we are brought back to the gospel again and again, we can continue to receive 
Christ. End quote. Now, he doesn't mean that in, in the sense that we are getting saved over and over again. But he's saying that we are receiving innocence. We are receiving the mercy and the love of God over and over again. And that it's a reminder of the grace of God in our lives. Now, if, uh, 